Lord, we would fix our eyes on you. But even as I pray that, we acknowledge that without you, we are not able to. So Lord, send your spirit upon us that we would see Jesus and that our eyes would be firmly fixed and remain firmly fixed upon him. Through the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. And go ahead and be seated. First of all, I want to say thank you to uh, so many of you for your prayers and your uh, love and care for our family in this difficult week. We deeply appreciate it. Um, also, if you're wondering who the handsome guy flying as my wingman this morning is, is my uh, brother-in-law, Father Greg Smith. I appreciate his uh, serving with me this morning. But five years ago, when I had the opportunity to visit Rwanda, I also had on that trip the opportunity to experience an earthquake for the first time. There it actually was an earthquake in the middle of the night uh, on the Rwandan and uh, Congolese border. So I was a goodly number of miles away from it, so it wasn't a dangerous experience. It was just enough uh, to wake me up in the middle of the night and actually make me wonder if I was hallucinating from my malaria meds. True story. But I was strangely excited because as a kid, I always had this fascination with earthquakes, probably because I grew up in the seismically most boring area of our country, the northern Midwest. Uh, but as a kid, I, I remember you know, seeing uh, news reports about major devastating earthquakes and thinking, wow, that's amazing. Just the sheer thought that something that seems so immovable, the earth itself, could shake with such force and such fury that it can reduce buildings to rubble, it was just a source of fascination to me. Mercifully, my experience was enough to get a taste, but not dangerous or terrifying, as earthquakes can be. Well, in a metaphorical way, that passage from the Gospel of Matthew that Father Greg just read for us is an earth-shattering story with implications of seismic proportions. This story from Matthew's Gospel carries with it that kind of power, the power to take something that seemed immovable, namely sin's curse, and reduce it to rubble. Like any real seismic activity, it's not just a, a standalone event. Just like a major earthquake, there are foreshocks that lead up to it and aftershocks that are felt in its wake. In telling the story and the way he does, Matthew wants us to see it, in it the force of a, of a couple of the tremors that came before it. So if you have your Bible with you, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 4. But first we need to understand Matthew's particular concern as a gospel writer. He is taking particular care to demonstrate that Jesus fits the Old Testament's description of the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the chosen king that God promised he would send to liberate his people and to rule them perfectly and justly. Matthew wants his readers to see in Jesus the fulfillment also of Isaiah's prophecies regarding a new servant. See, in the Old Testament, 
the, the people of God, the Israelites, were often referred to collectively as the servant of God. But to be frank, most of the time they were a pretty lousy servant. So through Isaiah, God declares that he's going to raise up another servant who will come from among their midst, but who will fulfill all of the plans and purposes, excuse me, of God, the plans and purposes which Israel never did, never could. Jesus was that servant. So these first few events in the life of Jesus carry with them the echoes of the Jewish exodus. The people of Israel passed through the Red Sea and later the Jordan River. So symbolically, Jesus comes to John and is baptized by him in the Jordan River. Then the people, of course, wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, right? And Jesus relives this time in the wilderness during his 40 days of fasting, which we're reading about. But here's what makes Jesus' wilderness experience vibrate with such enormous force. God's previous servant, the tribes of Israel, met many tests in the wilderness. And God blessed them, they were consistent. They consistently failed them. If you know the story, you'll remember that is precisely why the journey that should have only taken a couple of weeks ends up taking them 40 years to get from A to B because of their consistent failing in obeying and believing in God. But not this time, says Matthew. History repeats itself to a point and then finds its redemption because Jesus. So read with me in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now as we see the unfolding drama, we understand he did it right. He passes the tests. And by doing so, says Matthew, Jesus demonstrates that he is God's chosen servant who can and will accomplish everything that the Father purposes for humankind. By passing the test, Jesus radically breaks with the rest of human history, a history of inability to live in communion with God the way God intended. But the break with history goes much deeper than that, much deeper than simply doing it better than the Israelites. Matthew wants to make sure we see in this event the echoes of another even bigger foreshock, if you will. And to fully understand it, we need to start by looking at the content of the temptations themselves. And likewise, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, because that's when it occurred, where the tempter came to the man and the woman, and they did eat. When God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, he set them not in a wilderness, but in a garden, in paradise. And he, God himself, was their original life giver. Their life consisted in communion with God. We read about that time in the Old Testament. We heard it in the lesson this morning. Yet we also heard is why it spread between chapters 2 and 3, that reading. We hear about the man and the woman tested, and we see them failing 
by taking not simply an apple, but a step toward self-sustenance, a step away from their sustaining communion with God. That's the real impact of what we commonly just refer to as the fall. It's not just that they ate an apple because they were told not to eat an apple. It's not like God is like blowing things all out of proportion, like really the death penalty for eating of a, you know, like breaking one boundary. It's because God immediately understood what they failed to grasp. That by choosing the fruit of the tree at the serpent's suggestion, Adam and Eve marred the very life that they had been given. They chose to live by bread alone rather than to live in God, the author and sustainer of life. They naively thought that this food could lead them to becoming their own source of life. That they could take this source into themselves and live apart from God. Adam didn't break faith with God and put his trust in the word of a snake. Adam broke faith and put his trust in himself and what he believed he could gain for himself. And so it goes. Every man and woman and child after him have been bound by the same foolish slavery. We seek to live by our bread. We seek to live alone. Day in and day out, the vast majority of human beings live in search of that something that can sustain their life, something apart from their source. For some, that might be literal food. For others, it's an addiction to our own sense of self-importance, our own power, our own influence. For many in 21st century America, it's an addiction to the need to feel as safe and secure as I can and do everything that I can do to aid that feeling of warm, cozy security. It can take many different forms, but at varying points in our lives, we all face the temptation to be our own source of life, to dictate our own sense of value, our own sense of direction, our own purpose. In short, we seek to sustain ourselves, to sustain life apart from the God who gives life. So we read, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. His father, Alexander Schmemann, says, Satan came to two hungry men and said, eat, for your hunger is the proof that you depend entirely on food, that your life is in food. And Adam believed and ate. But Christ rejected that temptation and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by God. You feel the tremor? An earthquake that shatters the chains and breaks down the prison bars that have held humanity. Jesus passes the first test. He makes a way forward for all of us to follow after him, follow in a way of freedom. Freedom from the impossible task of self-sustaining. Jesus passes, so Satan tries it again with the temptation of the temple base jump. Right? 
If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your, strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here, Satan is tempting Jesus to claim his glory now, in his own way, in his own time. After all, it isn't that what he got Adam with. Adam was crowned with all glory as a prince amidst creation. But what the serpent offered, having it your way, was all, all too appealing. What Satan puts on trial here is Jesus' attitude of submission. You can have it your way. Why remain submitted to the way of the Father? Henry Nouwen says that this temptation was aimed at tempting Jesus to doubt the goodness of God. To doubt the goodness of God and his plans and purposes. That's a very real temptation, isn't it? Especially as we face the losses of life. Is God really good? Does he really have a plan for me? Then why? Why this? We're all faced at times with the temptation to doubt the goodness of God. Jesus himself was. This will come back around in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus wrestles in prayer with the plan and purposes of God. Do I really have to walk through this? Do I really have to go through this whole passion and crucifixion thing? Do I really have to suffer separation from your presence? If there's any other way. But in both cases, Jesus prevails. Yet not my will, but yours be done, Father. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, Jesus makes the way forward to trust in the plan and path of God even when it leads to the valley of the shadow. And then we come to this final temptation. Temptation to worship Satan. Then the devil took him to that holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, nope, that's, that's the one that we already read. <laughs> Yes, it is. Let's, let's find it here and read it. Sorry, I had it in my notes, but not. It says, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, we might naively think, Well, that's an easy one, right? Bow down and worship Satan. Are you kidding me? You know, is it like Satan was running dry on ideas, so he just sort of, you know, it goes with the Hail Mary, like, well, nothing else worked, we'll just give this one a shot. It's the weakest idea I've had, but we'll go with it. No, not in the least. Because we know from Scripture, 
that Satan can parade around in very desirable and beautiful garb. He's an angel of light, we're told. And whenever the angels appear throughout the scriptures, very, very often men and women are tempted to worship them, even have. The picture that the scriptures paint of the tempter, and dare I say, our personal experience of temptation, leads us to understand that Satan can be dangerously appealing. This was quite possibly the most difficult of the three temptations. It's the temptation to shift our focus from ultimate things onto really, really lovely lesser things. Satan's ploy is to get us to take that attention that should be exclusively God's and pay it out in other places. With Adam, as we saw, he got him to shift his object of faith from God to food and by extension, self. With us, he gets us to focus our attention, to place our faith in all kinds of places. In our jobs, our education, in our spouse, in our family. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. In fact, they are all, by and large, gifts given to us by God. The problem comes when we take the gift and make it the focus of our adoration. You see, as human beings, we are created with a capacity to worship. We have an innate need to worship, not just a capacity. As the great 20th century theologian Bob Dylan once said, you gotta serve somebody. And if our worship is not focused on the ultimate good, God himself, we will inevitably focus it somewhere else. This has been the story of human history until one day. The earth shook because one man said, no, my life consists in God. My glory is not my own to grasp at. It is given by God. God is the only person I was made to worship. No, Satan, no. That was a world-shaking event. When we moved to Colorado 15 years ago, We came here as seasoned gardeners. We had been gardeners, but back east, where soil is soil. We got here and wanted to plant a garden, and we just found dirt, right? You can't grow anything in dirt. It's dry, it's hard, it's full of clay, so the roots can't go deep, there's no nutrients, Nothing will grow. Believe me, I've tried for 15 years, and every year I still feel like a failure of a gardener. In order to make the dirt useful, you have to convert it to soil. You have to break it down and churn it up. You have to add things to it, manure, peat, compost. Then it becomes useful. Then it can sustain growth. After these 40 days in the desert, Jesus changed the world by saying no to Satan as no human being had ever done before. And through his death and resurrection and sending of his Holy Spirit, Jesus made the way for us to apply that work to our lives. Through this gospel work, Jesus can convert the dry dirt of our hearts 
into a rich soil that can sustain growth. Through the work of Jesus, the consumptive appetites of our hearts, that which says, I can take this in and have life in and through it and myself, can actually be converted into the soil of self-denial. The soil which says, I can't live like this anymore. I can never find enough bread to sustain me. I need something else. I wasn't meant to live by bread alone, but by God. Through the work of Jesus, the dirt of self-seeking glory, the attitude that says, I want it my way and I want it now, can be converted into the soil of submission that says, All that I have is what God gives, and that is the life that he intends for me. I will submit to his plan, his desires, his path for me. Not my will, but yours be done. And through the work of Jesus, the dirt of worshiping material, self, or some other vain distraction can be converted into the soil of a devotion to God as the author of our life, and as the only object truly worthy of our adoration. Friends, this is the work of conversion that God wants to continue to do in each and every one of our hearts. Converting the dry, hard, dusty places of our lives into rich soil that can sustain the life and the growth that he longs for us. And friends, Lent, the season that we enter into this week, is a gift, a gift given by the church for this cultivation work. As we engage various forms of fasting, we're able to feel that hunger that drives us to say, I really am dependent on something outside myself for life. Through prayer, we're invited to say to God, I want to trust your goodness. I want to live your plan. And we can say, you are the only object worthy of my highest attention. So, as we enter into this Holy Lent, we do so looking to Jesus, as the book of Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of our faith, He perfected the way of freedom, the way of saying no. And so we give ourselves over to him and his work, that he would do this cultivation in our own hearts as well. Let's pray. As we've already prayed this morning, you know that we do not have the ability within ourselves to help ourselves. You know the weaknesses of each of us, Lord. And so we pray again that each of us would find you mighty to save us in those places. Lord, take us and lead us, your people, through this journey of Lent. Do your work churning the dry, dusty places, watering our souls by your Spirit, Lord, and cultivating in us that which you want to grow. In your name that we pray, our Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.